What a delightful blessing it is to come together on this Lord's Day, even as we're currently assembled. The blessing of that which is around us just reminds us, as it does every Lord's Day, about how good the God of heaven is. He has showered upon you and me the degree of health, the degree of bodily appreciation, as well as that of mind, to have a desire and a will to pursue our place at this particular worship service today. And we're delighted that each and every person's here. As Brother Josh led us in prayer, he brought to our attention the hope that we each can be blessed and benefited by our study on some of the matters we'll turn our attention to during the course of this worship service today. Jesus, the Passover Lamb. For the next few moments, I would invite you to give some attention with me to that topic. And as we develop that, we're going to use a fair amount of the understanding connected to the way the Passover was first initiated and the description of it in Exodus, the 12th chapter. For that reason, you may want to be turning to Exodus 12, holding your finger at that location, as we borrow some of the thoughts shared with us there and use it to help us make comparison to Jesus. This opening slide is one that merely presents before us some introductory thoughts that prompt us into some of the later thinking that we shall encounter. The concept of the Passover, and in fact the very word, is one that occurs rather often in the Bible. Some 76 times in the entirety of the Bible, and of that number, 29 of them in the New Testament. And so the Passover is really a theme that occurs both Old and New Testament, and thus is one that can often be a critical matter in prompting our greater understanding of a certain passage, or at least of some indirect issues related to it. Without a doubt, one of the most amazing and thrilling and to some degree enthralling connections of that is, of course, the animal, the lamb that was so regularly offered. Now, God did allow them to offer other kinds of animals, as He describes in Exodus 12, but it seems as though the lamb was the one that occupied the principal appreciation. And so it is for that reason we'll cast an almost exclusive spotlight on that today. The Passover lamb, the description of it in relation to Jesus, will be, I hope, a very faith-building matter for each of us today. And so with that said, what about the first development? The development on this slide that's now before you. I've put together a few connections. I use that word at least in a way to prompt your thinking relative to some of the various matters you and I are going to use to, I hope, greater understand the nature of the Passover and the way that Jesus occupies that role. Let's talk about the role first, R-O-L-E. I've chosen that as the first one for this reason. You might recall the children of Israel found themselves at that time in captivity in Egypt. A king had arisen that didn't know Joseph. And you might recall that the people of Israel were enslaved and they were often placed under hard rigor, as the Bible, in fact, describes it. And yet the time came that they cried unto God. And God, in fact, commissioned Moses to go and deliver them. And you and I recall a number of plagues were brought upon them. And when we arrive at the tenth one, you might recall that the Pharaoh's heart to that point, he had been unwilling to let them go. And yet God was going to show His majesty. He was going to show His superiority. He was going to show His thoroughness. And so it was. 
that we have the reality of what was to occur the night when the firstborn were slain. And you and I remember in this role, could I at least bring us to note the following. So that night the Israelites were to celebrate or at least enjoy this meal. And it was going to be eaten in haste. And it was going to have certain elements which God was going to use as types of what was going to be the case centuries later. Don't you find it amazing that in 1 Corinthians, Jesus is called our Passover. So that night, if you would revisit with me Exodus chapter 12, we're going to read one of our first verses wherein that description is presented. In verse number 3 of Exodus 12, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And immediately we notice the reference. On the tenth day of the month, they were to take this lamb, and they were going to, in fact, keep it up, if you please. And then on a certain day, which we'll describe in a moment, they were going to take the lamb's life and then do something with its blood. And they were told to remain in a certain place wherein that blood was in fact to be seen. But now as you and I give thought to it, the consideration, if you'll jump over a little bit further into the chapter, you'll notice that verses 12 and following make reference to this Passover. And yet in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus is called our Passover. And in John 1, 29, even John the Baptist made reference to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And so there that word lamb is used, not with respect to an animal, but with respect to Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. Could we begin to at least see there's a rather interesting connection, a type, anti-type presentation in which we had on the one occasion a literal lamb but it was going to stand for and represent and point our thinking in a way that was going to lead us to Jesus. One last thing in Revelation 5, verse 5, in the very last book of the Bible, we notice there that at first John was a bit, shall we say, saddened by the thought that here was a roll a scroll, if you please, in the right hand of the, of the God of heaven, and no one on earth was worthy to take it and loose the seals. But suddenly, John was told, Don't cry, don't weep, for the Lamb of God. Though There is one who is worthy to take and to loose the seals, and one more time, Jesus is called a lamb. Now, he first was called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, but immediately he's referenced as the Lamb. This idea of the Passover just takes us to the next one. What's point number two in the connection? What things can we see in common between Jesus on the one hand and that lamb on the other? We just read in verse number three. Could I direct your observation to it again? They were to take a lamb. And the wording that was presented was this one. They shall take to them every man a lamb. In other words, there had to be a selection process as maybe the man of the household would look over his flock, he would choose the one that was going to occupy the place of the Passover. And so I, cho I chose to use the word chosen. The lamb was chosen. You may notice as verse number 3 puts that before us, it reminds us then that 
there was a deliberate and selected choice for that one to be the Passover. What about the case of Jesus? Was He chosen? I've asked you to look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And you and I recall other instances in which the Father sent the Son. That is to say, He deliberately made the selection, the choice for the Son to occupy that role of coming to this planet and to ultimately shed His blood, giving His life. In that regard too, you and I noticed that Jesus was chosen. But I suspect that some of the strongest language concerning that is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. Could I direct your attention as I read a few of the verses found in 1 Peter chapter 1, specifically beginning in verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, and you might notice that He was foreordained, selected or chosen in the far distant recesses of the ancient past, even before the world began. It was the will of the Father that this would be the case. And so on our second occasion, you notice that Jesus is the Passover, but He was chosen in the same way that that Passover lamb was also chosen. What about the third comparison? You and I have already noted from the participation in verse number 3 that on the tenth day of the month, that lamb was to be taken up or kept. That is to say, the lamb was selected. And then let's continue our reading in verse number 4 and following. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls, every man according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. So would you please imagine the development. Day ten of the first month, you identify the lamb, you select it, and then the text says you keep it. And then on the 14th day, you kill it. So we have the period from the 10th to the 14th. On the slide, I ask you to notice, was Jesus kept? And is there anything in comparison of that relative to the nature of Jesus as our Passover? Let me offer you the following thoughts. In the same way that the Passover lamb again was kept, and you notice there was a degree of inspection got to be a male of the first year, got to be without spot and blemish. In other words, there has to be an, an identification. Does this lamb qualify? Would you consider with me about Jesus? The New Testament describes a series of events that might well be identified as the one in which He too was selected and identified, and it begins to count, if you please. You and I see in Matthew 21, as well as some of the other gospel accounts, that particular momentous event in which He rode into Jerusalem triumphantly. 
that, of course, took place as he rode on, on the colt. That, of course, by itself is a miracle because that colt had never been ridden. And yet, in calmness and in directness and in the characteristic way of the great Son of God, Jesus came into the city and they hailed Him in a, in a momentous way. They strode palm branches in front of Him. He was so highly honored and respected at that time. And yet, four days later, they were going to kill Him. Oh, how quickly the circumstances changed. How swiftly the events took a different direction. May I point out among the things I've invited you to notice on that slide, just as surely as the Lord entered in in such a triumphant way, it appears as if that might be an appropriate appreciation for the counting. What wonderful statement did Pilate make? Even upon his scrutiny, even upon his analysis, he said, I find no fault in him. In fact, he said that more than once. Pilate found nothing worthy of death in Jesus, despite the fact the Jews demanded his death, despite the fact that they encouraged others along that line, stirring up the people. And yet on that slide, I've encouraged you to note this. That time period, consistent and again of that Passover, is exactly the same period in time that was related to Jesus' offering because He too was put to death on that Thursday. Isn't it interesting then we come to number four? What about the statement that the lamb that they literally took up was to have no blemish? So it couldn't be blind, and it was not able, you see, to be lame or some other feature. It couldn't have some kind of skin ailment or skin disease. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17.1, God had demanded that each of their offerings, as it involved these animals, it was to be a, a particular animal without blemish or spot. And yet, particularly with regard to the Passover, verse number 5 again reminds us, Your lamb shall be without blemish. The lamb had to be without blemish. Let's make that application to the master himself. The Bible frequently makes a connection between blemish or spot in light of what is not pleasing to God. And yet, as you and I think about the blemishless nature of Christ, He had no sin. He had never erred in any way connected to behavior, either by way of action or by way of word. Later on in 1 Peter 2, we're specifically told there was no guile in His mouth. Note verse 21. None. And not only that, aren't we told in Hebrews 4.15, We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus had no sin. And so in that sense, He too occupied a connected role to being blemishless, he was without spot. One last thought on that slide would then be the statement again of 1 Peter 1 verse 19. We noted a moment ago that he was foreordained or selected or chosen. But what was said in that previous verse, the one just before where we began that reading? Verse number 19, But the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Even Peter who sometime later wrote that book of 1 Peter, drew our attention to this blemishless and spotless nature of the Christ. So, so far, 
Jesus and that Passover lamb had many things in common. What about number five? What about the age? We've already read some things characteristic of this one. May I point out again that in Exodus 12, verse number 5, it says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. So please take note that it had to be a male. It couldn't be a female lamb. It had to be a male one. You and I know that Jesus, of course, was a male. That baby born to Joseph and Mary. But maybe we should more thoroughly say He was the Son of God. But what about His age? The Passover lamb had to be of the first year. I simply developed this thought in the following direction. A male of the first year would indicate that he was in the strength of his youth. Now you and I know Jesus literally was until the first year of His literal life upon earth. But isn't it true His life was taken while He was yet relatively young in the standard age of matters and time? Jesus was only 33. And so there were many who would advance far beyond that in age, and yet in the strength of His youth, His life was taken. His life was cut off, if you please, in the words of Daniel 9, verse 27. It might be in that connection that's a reminder to us that there was something very specific and something rather amazing about God's specifications of that Passover lamb, for it needed to properly represent the one centuries later that would be the prime Passover for one and all. Look at number 6. When was that lamb to be taken? When was its life to be taken? Let's continue reading. We read a moment ago up through verse 6. Let's read verse 7. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let none of it, nothing of it, remain until the morning, but that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. I've invited you to think about at least the time frame mentioned in verse number 6. They were to kill it in the evening. So it couldn't be in the morning, couldn't be in the middle of the day, it had to be in the evening. As you and I reflect upon the statement that God had therein revealed, why don't you and I then transition forward? What time of day was the Lord killed? What hour of the day was His life taken? As you and I look at the gospel accounts, we remember that He was nailed to the cross at nine in the morning, and He lived six hours. And you might remember beginning at the noonday hour, there was a darkness that fell across the land, and this darkness was for three long hours as a reminder of the dark choices the human family had made in putting to death the only perfect one that had ever lived. And then at, th at the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, the Lord died. He gave up the ghost in the words of John 19. It might be in that connection we at least see some correspondence. Kill the Passover lamb in the evening. Jesus died about mid-afternoon. Isn't it interesting in that connection 
it does bring us to note this. At what time of day? Remember, Jesus died at the Passover season. And so there would have been priests who at that moment were making ready to offer the literal lambs, which were the Passover to be understood and offered at that time. Don't you suspect then that there were some priests making ready to take the life of the literal lamb when the Lamb of God was being offered on the cross in another part of the city? It's a fascinating connection, isn't it? What about number seven? So far, the number of connections have been intriguing. What about this one? The bones of the Passover lamb. I've asked you to notice Exodus 12, verse 46. Somewhat later in the chapter than our earlier reading. But verse number 46 says, "...in one house shall it be eaten." Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. With regard to the Passover, they weren't to break the bones. A bone was not to be broken. As you and I then make a connection to the Christ, what about the Lord's death on the cross? We know fully well some of the particulars of the crucifixion event. But this much is stated for you and I to consider in John 19, verse 36. Would you, in fact, notice as we read that together? The Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 40, verse 36. I'll start reading in verse 32. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first, and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that He was dead already, they break not His legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced His side, and forthwith came out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken." Here John, as he in fact testifies of that event, brings to our recollection the fact that the Passover's bones also were not broken. And John, in fact, made that connection in verse 36. So, so far, the number of connections is intriguing, even to the point that when those Roman soldiers came in an interest to hasten the death, to break the bones of those in crucifixion, they found Jesus already dead. And they didn't break His bones. So far as we have looked at these seven connections, you might ask, are there others? Let's look at number eight. Let's think now about the blood. Again, that was a part of the actual Passover in Exodus 12. We've already read from that chapter some of the features connected to verse number 6 and 7. But again, the language of verse number 7 is very telling, isn't it? And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two posts and on the upper doorpost of the houses. So as you and I can imagine, as they then took the life of the Lamb, they salvaged or saved some of its blood, and you'll notice they were to use that, and they put it on the top post and on the two side posts of the entranceway to the house. And they were told to remain in that house. You and I remember otherwise, of course, that the death of the firstborn was to happen that night. And as long as they remained in that house wherein the blood was, there was something fascinating. 
something interesting and something amazing. For God had said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And thus the name Passover. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. How critical it was then for the children of Israel to follow the instructions, placing the blood on the top and on the two side posts of the entranceway into where they were dwelling. In that eighth connection on the top of that slide, what safety there was to be found in the place wherein the blood was in fact placed. Let's make that transition to you and me today. We have to be where the blood is, the blood of Christ. Jesus, we're told in Acts 20, 28, He purchased the church with His blood. So those in that Exodus 12 account were to stay in the house wherein the blood was. You and I need to be in the house where Christ's blood is. We need to be in the house where Christ's blood is the safety and security and the protection for those inside. That's just, that is the church. We thus with loving excitement should desire to be in that place that honors and reveres the blood of Christ. You'll notice on the top of that slide, I invite you to note a few connections that the Word of God makes connected to that blood. Perhaps none is any stronger than Revelation 1. May I invite you to listen as I read for you beginning in verse number five, uh, verse number five of that chapter. Revelation 1, verse number 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God, and his Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so isn't it interesting that there we've been washed in His blood and in so doing washed from our sins? The nature of the church as that house, the church is called the house of God in 1 Timothy 3.15. And so you and I too need to be in the house wherein that blood of the Passover, namely Jesus, is a protective agent, the entering agent. One last thing might be then that beautiful statement of Ephesians 1-7 in which we're each reminded that through the blood of Christ we have the forgiveness of sins. We enjoy redemption in that way. And thus in the same way that those of the Israelite era were to enjoy the blessed features of the Passover that night, place where the blood is, you and I each day should thrive to live in that place where the blood is protected and secured by the blood of our Passover, which of course is Jesus. What about number nine? Another connection of the Passover to Jesus. The memorial. You and I know quite well in the events therein stated in Exodus chapter 12. They were thus told that after taking care of the blood and putting it on the doorpost, it says in verse 8, they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden it all with water, but roast with fire his head with his legs and with the pertinence thereof. And so you'll notice that that night, due to the hastiness with which they were going to leave Egypt, 
they needed to be quick about the participation in this meal. Later on, we're told they were to eat of it with shoes on their feet, staff ready to go. Because that night at midnight, when the death of the firstborn came so relevant and occurring, the Egyptians hastened them to leave. But there was to be a lasting memorial of the events of that night. Every year annually, on the 14th day of the first month of the Israelite year, they were again to celebrate, to remember, and to participate in the ongoing memorial connected to the Passover every year. What about today? Oh, we don't take the Lord's Supper just once a year. We have the blessed honor of taking it once a week. On the first day of every week, there's a memorial, and we're about to participate in that later in this service. And oh, how we look forward to it. Because you and I remember that just as there were the elements of that which they were to be faithful to observe, you and I remember that on the night of that of Jesus' celebration in Matthew 26, He observed the Passover with His disciples, and as a part of that event, He instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. He took the unleavened bread, and He took the fruit of the vine, and He said, This is my body which is broken for you. And later He said, This is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins, Matthew 26, 28. And in that connection, we too enjoy a memorial of our Passover, just like they did for theirs. And so on that slide, I've pointed out several passages of Scripture for your consideration. But isn't it beautiful to hear Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11, as he gave instruction to that church at Corinth about how that they were, in fact, mispartaking of that Lord's Supper in some ways, and he encouraged them to be reminded that we dare not take of it in a way that is unworthily. And in so doing, if we do, we bring damnation on ourselves, for we have not properly discerned the Lord's body and the Lord's blood. It's a serious thing, just as it was for them. As you and I close that slide, we've seen nine connections, nine comparisons between Jesus as our Passover and the events of that first set of Passover events. Let's conclude our lesson like this. The Word of God is so remarkable. An event as rather simple in some ways as the killing of an animal. 1,500 years before Jesus was born. And yet it symbolized in so many ways the particulars of the life of the Lord as it was offered in the way for the sins of humanity. Even the consideration of the church is such a beautiful one. As we come to the close of this lesson today, I would offer one last thing from Revelation 14.4. They were to, of course, to remain in the house where that blood was. Couldn't go outside. That was not only dangerous to one's life, it would have been disobedient to God. Today, how critical it is that we remain faithful in that house that is the church. You and I are encouraged to follow the Lamb. There's our reference again. Jesus, follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. Revelation 14, 4. This very day, there might be someone in this assembly. Maybe you've lost sight of who your Passover is. There's only one. 
None of us could ever serve as our own Passover, nor could we select any animal out of a field. Jesus is the one Passover. He's the only one, remember, that was blemishless of the proper consideration and able then to be for you and I what we could never be for ourselves. Aren't you thankful for the Lord? Aren't you excited to be a follower of His? If you have slidden from your faithfulness, maybe under the banner of Jeremiah chapter 10, you have lost sight and become one who is unfaithful, you can come back to your first love. And the Lord is anxious and wonderfully happy to accept you back. If you have been guilty of sins in a public way and brought shame and reproach on yourself, maybe your family, maybe the church, won't you come back to your first love this very day with excitement in your heart and a tear in your, in your eye as you make repentance and confession of those errors, God will forgive you through the blood of His Son, 1 John 1 verse 7. But if you've never become a Christian, maybe you too would like to enjoy the blessings connected to the Passover. You do that by believing in Jesus, repenting of your sins, confessing His name, being baptized, and then living faithfully until death. But if we could help you begin that journey today, it'd be our joy and our privilege to do so. A hymn of encouragement has been selected, and we'll use this as a convenient time to encourage and invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.